So if you would join me, uh, it's printed in your bulletin. Our passage comes from the book of John, chapter 4. And uh, we're reading a lot, but just kind of sit back and get into the narrative and um, listen to what's going on. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty And have to keep humming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I want to take just a minute and have a little experiential experiment Back up and just kind of think through this whole encounter that we just read. And imagine you're an innocent little bystander standing near the well, maybe sitting on the edge of the well, maybe just approaching halfway through. What's the tone of this whole interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman? Does it sound a little accusatory? Does it sound maybe a little combative? Jesus towards this woman? Does it sound defensive? This woman coming up and being told these things about her that nobody really should know in his position? 
Does it seem to be a battle of us and them, those that are in and those that are still on the outside? Is it a threatening situation between Jesus and this woman? I love when I'm speaking to students and reading passages about Jesus' encounter with people. It's just to say, what did Jesus' face look like? What was his facial expressions as he's talking to this woman? What is he communicating without saying things? I want to offer maybe a little different perspective. I think this woman that approached the well, without even really being conscious of it, was experiencing a longing in her life, maybe a little dissatisfaction and unfulfillment because of what life had dealt her and the choices that she had made in her life. And I want to suggest that this interaction is actually a beautiful, patient and compassionate offer from Jesus as a Savior to a woman who has kind of lost perspective of who she is and what her role in life is. See, I think she's lost the knowledge that she was created to worship God and that she was created as a child of God and because of that is not a them but is an us and included in that. When I say that she was created to worship God, what do you think you were created to do? Not just like your gifts and your talents and your career and your callings and your family, but at your core, as a child of God, what were you created to do? My good friend Vicki Kendick is here in the, in the pews, and she may have heard me tell this story before, but it's probably been eight or ten years ago. But we sailed, uh, her, she and her husband's boat, rather large boat, sailboat, from San Francisco down to Ensenada on the maiden voyage. And we're probably three-quarters of the way down, and it happened to be a beautiful day. You know, I'm, I'm one of the deckhands. I basically just do what I'm told, and I pull ropes and push buttons and different things. But I was off, and so I got to go to the front, very front of the boat where the bow is, and there's a little walkway that extends out over the bow of the boat. And that's where the anchors go over, but it's also a place where you can go out over the front of the boat and kind of look into the water. So we're, we have full sail. We are cruising beautiful day, so I go up and sit on this area at the front of the boat, and my feet are dangling down, and the water is splashing up on my feet. It's a pretty good day. Sun's on my face, and I notice that about a dozen dolphins come up on either side of the bow, because the bow now, we're cooking, so we're creating quite a wave on both sides that's going by. So these dolphins work their way up in formation, and one of them is always in the lead, and then there's four or five other ones behind it, but they are just, if you could hear dolphins giggle, I'm pretty sure I heard them giggle, because they were just loving what they were doing. And, and every once in a while, the one that was in the front would peel off and go back, and then the next one would come up, and it was just like an orchestra of animals doing what they were created to do, and loving it, and relishing in it. And because I was able to see and do that, I was able to say, wow, God, thanks for this little reminder, this little moment of seeing what joy can come from doing what we were created to do. So I'll ask the question again. 
What were you created to do? In the book of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, it says and explains the fact that we were created by God to acknowledge who he is, and as his children, we were created to worship him. We're given an innate awareness of something bigger than ourselves, our creator, and that we're drawn to pay homage and to worship him. We all worship something because that's what's in our nature. So quick definition of what is worship. This is Webster's. It's an intense love and admiration for something or something and your expression of that intense love and admiration. What are some things, we're created to worship, so what are some things that we worship in our life? There's a lot of things that we could admit that we worship, some things that we don't want to admit that we worship. You know, there's all the big dollar and those things. I gotta be honest with you, last week, I was worshiping the warriors, baby. (laughs) I was glued to the TV, I was yelling. It was wonderful. When's the last time you went to a concert? This may be a little surprising to some of you, but actually the last concert my wife and I went to was the Red Hot Chili Peppers at Oracle Arena. It was so cool. People were on their feet for four hours, yelling and screaming and singing the songs and applauding. There was some worship definitely going on. So we worship all kinds of things, But I think, and none of those are bad in and of themselves, as long as we keep the priority of what the original design of our worship was created to be. And that was to worship our Heavenly Father and to acknowledge Him. Even the Israelites were created to worship, as we tell their story and their saga through the Old Testament. Where they got in trouble was when they started worshiping other things before God or replacing God with their idols. So this woman who's been created to know God and worship him is now a little lost because she's lost the awareness of this possibility. She's got a couple obstacles. Jesus is inviting her. He's asking her, would you give me a drink? Well, I think he was capable of getting his own drink if he wanted it. But he saw this opportunity for a woman that maybe had lost her purpose. So he engages her. Hey, will you give me a drink? And that starts the conversation. She has a couple obstacles to overcome, and he's there to help her with it that day. I think her first obstacle is that she realizes painfully that she's a Samaritan and not a Jew. And it was very clear to her that God was for the Jews and not her. They were in, and she was out. Some of that was their projection on her. Some of it was her perception and projection on herself. So here's what happens in this interaction with Jesus. First of all, he invites her to know him. He introduces himself. He helps her to get over her stuff, which is not very pretty. We don't need to spend a lot of time, but a woman that's been married five times and living with a sixth man. So she's had a bit of a storied past. Chances are that this isn't a big secret in the town where she lives, but here's this stranger that happens to know it. So he helps her get beyond her stuff, and then he shows her that she belongs, that it's no longer us and them, inside and outside. 
And then he helps her move to a place of understanding. And that leads to gratitude, which leads to worship. And he gives a little example of worshiping the way God desires, and that's in spirit and truth. So he invites her in. He draws her into the conversation. He pursues her. He doesn't shun her. He tells her some information about herself that I think is probably pretty surprising to her that he knew that. But it didn't communicate to her in a way that there was finger pointing or that there was judgment. It was more done in a way of, let me tell you that I know who you really are. And I'm not going anywhere. And I want to continue a conversation with you. I think maybe even for the first time, she felt flattered or invited in. And that maybe she wasn't as bad as she felt. So he invites her in. And then he offers her something. He offers her something that she doesn't quite understand, but it sounds pretty good. This living water. I don't know really what all this is, but I think that's what I want. So will you give me some? So then he gives her the information that he knows about her past. And she says this phrase that I think is probably an understatement of the year. She says, I can see you're a prophet. You just told me about my whole life and you've never met me. But that doesn't drive her away. Because there's something in the atmosphere and the relation and the communication that's going on. There's a safeness. She doesn't feel like she has to hide it. She just acknowledges it. And it's not written in the passage But I think just that sheer fact that Jesus didn't judge and didn't run away or didn't shun or push her away, I think it led her to acceptance of who she is and what her life had been up to at that point, which leads to confession. You know, I was in, we lived in New Mexico for my first church position. And in New Mexico, there's a lot of road between towns. And nothing on those roads <laughs> in between those towns. I lived in a little town called Roswell. So I'm driving alone on about a three-hour trip back home from a place that I had been. Nothing on these highways, man. So I'm in this big old Delta 88 that my grandmother, or my aunt, excuse me, had passed down to us. And, and I'm just, to be honest with you, I'm flying. I'm probably going 80 plus, close to 90 and, you know, you're caught up in the moment, there's whinies, you're going, and out of nowhere, from a mile behind me, I see the lights, whoop, whoop, finally come up on me, he pulls me over, and I'm going, man, I haven't seen a car for 15, 20 minutes, where in the world did he come from? So he pulls me over, he walks up, roll down the window, license registration, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, no, I have no clue. <laughs> Because I, where'd you come from? I haven't seen anybody for a while. And he goes, well, I got you clocked at 88 miles an hour in a 70 zone. And I said, really? How, I didn't, where did you come? I didn't see you do that. He goes, well, we have airplanes that fly around with radar. And they booked you going 88 miles an hour. So uh, let's slow it down. And here's your ticket. So in one way or another, I kind of said, I can see you're a prophet. I can see you know some things that I wasn't aware that you knew. So she has that response, but it doesn't chase her away. She's still in the moment with him. That interaction with her could have ended up 
with her feeling shame and guilt and her retreating. But his presence and knowing yet still pursuing her and not judging leads her to a place of dealing with her stuff and confessing. Why do you think we have the prayer of confession at the beginning of the service? Why is that the first time we enter into prayer? We all have stuff. Stuff that happens on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. None of it that we want to really deal with or be proud of. Most of it we hope nobody else sitting next to us in the pews is fully aware of. But as we enter and God draws us at a time of worship, he knows. That's why we have that time of prayer and confession at the beginning. Because confession clears us of our guilt and our sin and our shame offers forgiveness, and all of a sudden we have a clean slate to start with, and we have this feeling of thanksgiving and gratefulness that comes over to us because of the forgiveness that's just been given to us. Now, we're ready to sit in a different posture, a posture of worship, because we've been identified, we've owned our stuff, he's forgiven us, and now we're at a place where we can worship. You know, in the church that I served before we moved here was in New York. And I was one of the pastors, so I was on the leadership board. We had a thing called consistory. It was a different denomination than, the, than our church. Our trustees would be the equivalent. And we were in a series of a big decision for the church. And about half of the, adult, of the leaders were opposing the other half in just a major decision our church had to make. People had their heels dug in. They were confident in what they were saying. They were passionate about what they believed. But they were just butting heads on this decision. And this was the third meeting in a row that just went, was going nowhere. And I wish I could say it was just my wisdom and um, just presentness and knowledge of God and everything else that brought me to a point to bring this out to them. But more it was just throwing my hands up in the air of just, guys, we're getting nowhere. Can we just stop and pray for a minute? And I had been on a a monastic retreat not too long before that, and I was introduced to something called the Jesus Prayer. I know Don shared this with us in the past, but it was a monastic prayer that just was a very simple line that says, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And it's usually said in repetition, repetition, And so I said, guys, why don't we do this? Let's take five minutes. And I read that prayer out loud to them and said, I'm going to just pray this out loud while you guys listen. And I'll pray it like five times. If you want to join in, join in. So we did. And it was a little quiet. And by the third time I prayed the prayer, they started joining in. And by the time we were done with the fifth or sixth time, and it was just time for an appropriate little session of quietness, a couple of them started talking to each other in a different tone of voice than they had before. And all of a sudden, you know what? When I got my stuff out of the way and I put God before my thoughts, my passions, the decisions that needed to be made, all of a sudden those guys came together and they made a decision that was neither one of their agendas, but it was a separate decision that really impacted and benefited our church because they took time to acknowledge that he's God and I'm not, 
and I need your help and your forgiveness and your acceptance before I can move on towards worship. Let's take just a minute this morning. I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but I think it's a hugely cathartic and amazing thing just to pray that prayer. And I'm going to do it four times. And if you want to join in audibly, I encourage you to do that because it, it's amazing that when you say it and then you say it again, you kind of have to go there and think about it. You don't even have to close your eyes. If you want to, you can. But I'm going to pray that sinner's prayer real quick. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Amen. Encourage you to remember that. If worship is coming hard to you, seems to be obstacles in your way, if you're feeling shame, maybe give that prayer a shot. So her next obstacle that this woman is still dealing with is the fact that she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And she's been told and she's been taught and she's painfully aware, just even in social interactions, that Jews don't associate with Samaritans because there's Jews and there's Samaritans. The haves and the haves-nots, the ins and the outs. So over the next couple of minutes, as she's fumbling through her description of why she's having an obstacle with this, see, you guys worship in Jerusalem where God is, right? But my people and my ancestors, we worship on this hill, and they know that there's an emptiness and a distance there. Jesus says something revolutionary. Well, things are changed. In fact, there's a time coming, and now that time is now. That there's no barrier anymore. There's no haves and have-nots. There's no us and them. All God desires is true worshipers. And everyone is invited to the place of true worship. And by the way, it doesn't matter where it is or the mode or method, whether the music is hymns or contemporary with guitar or a harp, whether you're outside or inside, standing on the top of a mountain in Tahoe, or whether you're in your bathroom at home. He said it all has to do with the condition of your heart and the sincerity of your worship. And he's inviting her to be a part of that. He's overcoming that second obstacle. I think there's a little bit of excitement in this woman. And I think he realizes it. He's brought her past the obstacles that she has to worship. It comes down to owning your stuff and taking advantage of God's forgiveness and letting that lead you to a grateful heart. To remember that you're his and he's available to you because we all belong. And by the way, it's our responsibility to make sure that those who feel like they don't belong are assured that they belong too. The kind of worshipers the Father seeks are those that worship in spirit and truth. You know, I use this passage every year uh, in our confirmation class with our eighth grade students. Because when we get to the idea of worship, there's a little bit of 
I don't really know what that looks like. I think there's a little bit of fear that maybe I'll do it wrong and not right. I'm not sure really how to get there. So we read this just to kind of get some of the relief off. That relief doesn't have to be perfect. And it's never going to always be 100% in spirit and truth. But if our intention is to make sure we prepare ourselves and we come on, not just on Sunday morning, but with every breath we take and every person we interact with and every opportunity we have, that we know we were created to worship God, that that's what he desires from us, and that is where we are most fulfilled, is when we are in the presence of God, forgiven and accepted, grateful and desiring to worship and express our intense love and admiration for our God. So Jesus was asking her, will you give me a drink? And really what he was asking her is, can we have a conversation? Can I invite you in to something that you're missing? Today we have that same invitation for us. I pray that as we continue and finish our time of worship, that you would allow yourself to go there. And even as we leave this place, and not let those barriers get in our way. One last little thing. Here's the postscript. She leaves Jesus. You know what she does? The next few chapters go on. She runs back to all of her friends. You're not going to believe what just happened to me. Who I met. i got to tell you all about him. Not just who he was, but the way he made me feel. And that now i got good news. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to find this God. You know what happened? Most of her friends said, we got to go back with you. So they went back to where Jesus was at the well. And they begged him to stick around for two more days. And he did. And they all heard something they hadn't heard before. And they all became part of the church. Acknowledging their childhood of God. They got over their stuff. And they were invited in. And they worshipped. It's an amazing story. I hope you're encouraged by it today. And I pray that uh, as you have opportunity, you'd pass along this good news as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you choose to meet us where we are. You don't overlook our sin, but you bring us in the midst of it and offer forgiveness. And then you allow us to be in the state of a grateful heart, desiring to worship and to praise and to adore and to honor our Heavenly Father. Father, I pray that would take place every time we meet and every time we have thought to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.